Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and today podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. Today we're presenting another bonus, Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. One meaning of corona is halo of light, so together let's find some silver lining in the pandemic. Today we have a return guest who was present... Uh, Oh, a little over a year ago, talking about deaths of despair. Her name is Dr. Francie Broghammer. And Francie is chief psychiatry resident at University of California, Irvine. And she's especially interested in medical ethics, education, spirituality, and human flourishing. She's a Notre Dame graduate. She's a mother of one with one on the way, expecting next month, lives in Long Beach, California, with her husband, a former Notre Dame basketball player. Francie, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm excited to be here, especially during these crazy times. It is a crazy time, and that's exactly why we want you here, because <laughs> psychiatry would tend to see things that are a little um, uh, cutting edge in terms of how this is affecting people. So the, the simplest question I want to ask you is, how did your life change in the last six months from the preceding several years of training? Sure. I, you know, Tom, it's probably easier to answer how it hasn't changed. <laughs> to be honest with you. All right, go for it. Um, but it's it's been really interesting. I think on it from a professional standpoint, all of our outpatient work, which is most of what I'm doing right now, is 100% tele-based, um, wow. meaning I'm seeing patients over video, uh, which is not only new for them, but very new for me as well. And I think you, I didn't appreciate the, the, the small rooms that we spend time in and kind of the blank walls and kind of the sanctity that comes along with that special yes. private place because so many of my patients are saying there's things I can't discuss at home. I don't feel comfortable having open conversations. And I have a whole new appreciation for these little offices we work out of. At the same time, it's been really very special to actually be welcomed into people's homes via video. And even from not just a personal standpoint, but even from a diagnostic standpoint, there's something oftentimes to be learned about what you can see in people's kind of natural environment. Oh, any little tidbits that you'd like to share? Yeah. So I have several patients actually who are very hesitant to even turn on the camera, especially if it's a Zoom meeting. Yes. And that tells you something, right? What is the hesitation? Because when you're here in person, we have to see each other face to face. Yes. So is that saying something about how you feel about how you look personally or the environment around you? Um, and in particular, my patients who are going through significant medical problems, um, such as cancer or chemotherapy, I'm seeing some more of that self-consciousness factor. And, oh, my hair is falling out, or, oh, I've put on mm. weight, or I have a new rash. Um, and it just, we always say that, especially in psychiatry, these rooms are a microcosm of the outside world. And so it really allows us to, or it has allowed me to appreciate the extent that this interaction with the patient is truly a microcosm. If they're scared to be seen on camera here, they're also probably scared to go out of the house and to go to dinner with their friend. That oh, sure. So does that willingness to be seen vary by diagnosis? It does. It does. Um, and it, I, I've actually also found it varies a little bit by gender. Ah. Uh, women sometimes are a little bit more hesitant than men. That's not a surprise. I know. I know. <laughs> and something else that's just a slight offshoot of that that I've noticed is individuals who are a little bit more socially isolated or don't have as many meaningful relationships in their night lives are very angry about the fact that they can't come in or they tend to be a little bit angrier that oh, they're being asked to do therapy over the You are their social outing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it comes at a greater cost to them to do a video visit or a telephone visit 
than um, maybe some of the other patients that I see. Fascinating. So you think that there are some things being lost by doing it by telemedicine instead of doing it in the office? There are some things being lost and there are some things being gained. Oh. If, if I had to choose, I would say I think it's better definitely to have the in-person interaction, um, especially when it comes to some of the necessary rapport and privacy that is required to effectively do therapy and psychiatric treatment. Um, but it's, like I said, it can be very diagnostic in some ways and very telling to be welcomed into people's homes, into their personal lives where they have control over what you can see and what you can't see. You know, there's a, a, uh, a physician writer named Abraham Vergesi. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he talks to talk about how important the physical touch of a physical exam is in developing a relationship with a patient. I'm wondering how much that would transfer into psychiatry in terms of just being physically present. I think it transfers a lot. Um, and something that I've noticed with my patients, even before we transitioned to telepsychiatry, was that if you're willing and you have the time and the space to actually like turn away from the computer, sit closer to them than you would, um, occasionally reach out and appropriately touch an arm or a leg, something sure. like that. Um, it goes a long way for people feeling heard and building trust within that relationship. And while I might not be doing a full physical exam like you would if someone was having a heart attack, oftentimes we still do full neurologic exams, et cetera. Oh, sure. But even just the human connection that comes with being able to to prove in person that I am here and I am listening to you, you have my undivided attention, is not only necessary for diagnostic purposes, but for therapeutic purposes as well. Francie, about uh, three or four weeks ago, I interviewed a uh, Harvard psychiatrist uh, who said that he thought using telemedicine for anxiety patients, there was really nothing lost. But with depression patients, he wasn't able to help them as much. What have you experienced with those patients with those diagnoses? You know, that's an interesting observation, and I, I can see maybe where he's coming from with that. I'd be interested to see over time, because I've made a, a slightly different observation, and that's that early on, um, my anxious patients in particular tended to be doing better um, than I anticipated that they would be. And in the last, after about two to four weeks of the pandemic and the shutdown, um, anxiety patients tended to actually start to fare worse. So they did better up front and did worse over time. Whereas my depressed patients have by and large been a little bit more steady throughout. So wow. I haven't noticed significant changes between diagnoses, but I've noticed different trajectories over time, if that makes sense. Sure. You are in a residency. You have a little over a year to go before you graduate. What impact has COVID had on not only your residency program, going to all telehealth, it sounds like, uh, and other residents and medical students in your hospital system? Good question. And it's the, still evolving day by day. So from, I think it's important to note that from a psychosocial standpoint, this is the first time across the country that patients have, and providers have largely been in the same boat. You know, yes. there's always been this disparity where the, the physician wasn't experiencing the chest pain or wasn't experiencing the anxiety and the patient was, but now our patients are coming in and reporting anxiety or distress secondary to uh, environmental factors we're all struggling from. Yes. And so what I've noticed is that the environment as a whole, due to that, due to the uncertainty, due to the risk that healthcare providers are incurring, the intensity of everything we 
done has gone up, which has made it a lot harder to navigate things. And how it's specifically been implemented at UCI is like every hospital across the country, I think um, everyone's been asked to be very, very flexible. We've been changing schedules by the week. Honestly, we're running skeleton crews. So we have backup people in case um, some of our providers fall sick and so that we can still provide services to the patients who need it and, or maybe step in uh, when there's empty clinics and we have an increased need from patients. When we have, you know, a lot of patients who are suffering that maybe weren't suffering a month ago, how can we reroute some of our providers so that they can provide the adequate level of care that's being asked of the environment around us? And I think across the board as a result of this, hours have increased. So it's not just intensity that's going up and it's our, it's hours that have gone up hours as well. Hours have increased even though hospital censuses are down around the country. Mm-hmm. Is your hospital census down? Our hospital census is down at this point in time. But what we're seeing is people who are eligible to take call, for example. The pool maybe has gotten smaller because we have some providers with pre-existing medical conditions oh. or maybe you are out sick. So everyone's being asked to cover services that maybe they weren't before. Not necessarily outside of our department. We haven't had to go to repurposing at this point. Um, but even within our department, inpatient providers going outpatient and vice versa. Is there any talk yet of going, of ramping down in California, the level of physical or social distancing? So we are preliminarily starting to have some of those conversations and they're thinking probably the last week of May, we will start welcoming some of our just like sub urgent cases back into clinic. Because wow. right now we will still see urgent and emergent cases, obviously in person, either in clinic in the emergency room or in the hospital. Um, but opening up our threshold a little bit more, probably late May. I assume you still have an inpatient service. We have several, and it's just as busy as ever. Okay. Well, that's good to hear that they're getting taken care of. Well, when we talked with you um, last year early about deaths of despair uh, up to the point of the pandemic, what have you learned new about deaths of despair since that interview and particularly within the pandemic? Sure. Good question. And it's unfortunately a little bit early to answer epidemiologically what's happened within the pandemic. But what we've seen since we last spoke a year-ish ago is that the deaths of despair numbers have shifted just a little bit. They've actually, thanks be to God, come down. Mm. Uh, What's interesting is deaths of despair is a term that's used to clump deaths due to suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related illnesses. And unfortunately, in the past year, our suicide rate has continued to increase, uh, but the deaths due to drug overdoses have actually dropped off a little bit. So when we're seeing our deaths of despair come down a little bit, it's only because the, the overdoses have dropped and not because there's been a significant change in suicides. It's actually, unfortunately, continued to go up. And I've been um, uh, helping write a paper uh, dealing with you know the effects of the social distancing on other healthcare issues. And I found in previous recessions, an association between unemployment and suicide. Were you familiar with those findings before? Yes, yes I am. And that's actually the core of the work that Ann Case and Angus Deaton have done. They're two economists out of Princeton that actually have done a lion's share of the deaths of despair work. And what they found is not just suicide, but all of the deaths of despair, the clumping we just talked about, uh, increase alongside rates of increasing unemployment, more so than anything else, more so than obesity or family genetics. It's tied strongly to unemployment. 
um, especially for the population that's age 45 to 55 Caucasian without a bachelor's degree. So we're largely talking about blue collar workers in that demographic. So what is your sense right now? I know we're in the midst of this, but do you think there'll be more health, morbidity, mortality consequences because of the social distancing or because of COVID itself? Oh, if we're talking total numbers, you yes. know, because the deaths of despair numbers are so fast, my hunch is any of impact or increase that we see in deaths of despair as a result of social distancing will far outpace that of what we're seeing from COVID. Um, in 2018, there was an estimated 157,000 deaths of despair in America, to put that wow. in perspective. Yeah. Um, about 68,000 of those were due to overdoses and about 48,000 uh, were due to suicide. Suicide, right. Yeah. And, and the work I found, I've seen two different studies, one that said uh, roughly 1% increase in suicide per 1% increase in unemployment. Another one said 1.3% increase in suicide. So that's really 480, roughly 500 a year for every percent increase in unemployment. And then I saw a 3.6% increase in drug overdose death per 1% increase. And so those numbers add up fast. And there are so many other things, just like in the emergency rooms, where are all the heart attack, stroke, uh, acute appendicitis, bowel obstruction patients? They're down all over the country. And, and there's nothing, there's no intervention that would bring them down, you know, 30, 40, 50%, which is what they're seeing in some places. So uh, I just wonder if our public health decisions can be made with a, a broader view of what's going on. And that's what I'm hoping to glean from you with psychiatry. So in, in fact, with psychiatry now, how, how are the diagnoses similar or different now than they would have been two months ago that you're treating? Sure. So what we're seeing is anyone who had a pre-existing condition, such as depression or anxiety, that yes. is there and more prone to being exacerbated during this time. So they were more at risk. They're probably not doing as well right now. We're also seeing individuals who never previously suffered from things such as depression or anxiety start to contend with these issues for the very first time. Mm. And, and so the, the need is going up there. What we're also seeing in addition to that is disorders that are maybe talked about less frequently, such as agoraphobia or OCD. Yes are definitely spiking as well because all of a sudden we're being told that the outside environment is maybe oh. not as safe, right? So and, they're being vindicated or validated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think one of the most heart-wrenching populations that's jumped out at me lately is those who are in abusive dynamics, right? Domestic violence, child abuse, et cetera. They're often now being forced to stay in a home, spending yes. more time with an aggressor who probably is also experiencing their own depression, anxiety, or financial hardship. And so it's being taken out on the individual who's trapped in the home. And it, I've seen that play out time and time again. And I, I should have thought about that as soon as this yes. all started, um, but I, di I didn't think about it early enough. And I'm starting to see increasing cases of that coming through the clinic. I've made an increased frequency of calls to CPS or APS actually over the last two months. And, and that means a child and protective child services? Child and adult protective, protective services. services. Yes. Yeah, I saw what one uh, number on the internet circulating was uh, a hotline for uh, crisis. Uh, was it SAMHSA? 891% increase. That's roughly 10 times the amount. Do you, are you familiar with that number and what kind of calls that crisis hotline gets? So 
SAMHSA is very similar to a lot of other crisis hotlines that we see, and I'll maybe answer this question more broadly. Across the country, mm -hmm. we're seeing calls to crisis hotlines spiking significantly. For example, um, I have a couple stats here. Portland, Oregon, um, their calls for actual suicidal ideation or suicide attempts went up 23% as soon in the, in the week following the safer at home mandate yes. in North Dakota, their suicide hotline call volumes gone up 300%. There's um, a text line out of Boston that just last week actually triaged 6,000 different conversations, which is twice what they normally do. And a large majority of these are COVID related. People are reporting things such as anxiety, stress, fear of eviction, inability to pay utilities, unemployment, health concerns, both for themselves and for their loved ones. Now, I read in one article written by a mental health expert that those patients already dealing with anxiety or depression probably were able to better cope than those people for whom anxiety and depression is new. Does that make sense? It can make sense. It absolutely can. And it would depend on the severity of the individual's depression or anxiety, to be honest with you. But someone okay. who, for example, has been contending with anxiety for years and has a litany of coping skills in their back pocket um, has yes. something to turn to at this point in time. Whereas individuals who have always kind of brushed off therapy or said mindfulness or meditation isn't going to work for me, it's hokey. It's a hard time to start when all of a sudden you're in a very heightened environment. And so you're trying to learn coping skills on the fly as yes. opposed to kind of honing them over time with lots and lots of guidance. Got it. What do you think about the term social distancing? <laughs> so I terms are a bit of a pet, per, a pet peeve for me, to be honest with you, because people always say, oh, it's such, there's so much stigma tied to it. If we just change the word, to be honest with you, words hold a lot of power. Yes. But I think that social distancing is what it is as, as far as a term goes. And as, as opposed to attacking the term, we need to really take a look at what we mean by that and how we're executing it. Um, and so social distancing in and of itself actually says we should try to stay six feet away from other individuals. And we should try to limit unnecessary outings into public, essentially, and keep a small social circle. And within that small social circle, that those individuals would have limited interactions with the outside world, also limiting their exposures, practicing six feet, et cetera. That is not the same thing as being shut up by yourself in your house, right? So the terminology is one thing, but how we're actually executing the practice of social distancing varies a lot from individual to individual. And I think that is something that we need to explore a little bit more. Um, do you think it would be better to use the term physical distancing? I suppose so. But to be honest with you, again, here, we've seen this so often in psychiatry for years and decades of, oh, this term is stigmatizing or it's not communicating what we needed to. Let's change the term. But if we're not changing the reality, at best, we're wordsmithing. Interesting. I have not seen that. I've seen a number of mental health professionals say we need to change the term. I haven't seen anybody with your fresh we perspective. Can, we, can, we can change it, but I think the bigger thing is we need to change the actual practice of. Because um, one of the implicit realities of either term uh, is looking at everyone else as a potential threat. How do we get around that? Or do? 
So I don't know if we do right now because with this, the, this, the corner that we've been backed into with this virus that we don't know a lot about is that everyone is, if in a very real way, a potential threat. We don't know who's caring. We don't know who's asymptomatic, which feeds this anxiety, right? right. And so that's, that's why we say six feet is maybe appropriate. And so, yes, people are a threat, just like the counter or the that your tables or that your computer's sitting on or the chair that you're sitting in is also a potential threat because yep. we don't, we can't see this thing. We can't, we don't know exactly how long it lives or where it lives. We have some guesses. We have some, some data coming out, but there's a lot we don't know. Um, so viewing others as a threat, we need to recognize, sure, from an infectious disease standpoint, they're a threat, but are they a threat from a social standpoint, right? Are they a threat in other areas and how can we weigh the the pros and cons of this type of threat versus that type of threat when we choose how we're going to interact yes. with people. Yeah, one thing we have to realize is that the threat's never going to be zero. We can never bring the risk to zero. Right. You've talked about in our past interview, uh, America's crisis of loneliness. How is that being exacerbated by social distancing? Good question. And it's a little early to say from a large research standpoint, we don't have all the studies on it yet, but I think uh, that it's going to vary a lot by population because there are certain things we know that loneliness in America has gone up significantly since 1980, actually threefold, where one in five Americans prior to the pandemic would tell you they had no one they could talk to when they were going through a difficult time. And when we look into the deaths of despair and suicides a little bit more, there was two populations in particular that stood out. One being middle-aged Caucasian males without a bachelor's degree are, are blue-collar workers by and large, age 45 to 55. And the other being adolescent females. So I would venture what? a guess. Adolescent yep, females. Adolescent females. I would venture a guess those two populations are going to fare very differently at the end of this pandemic. Um, one, as we talk about changes in unemployment and family dynamic, family structures, et cetera, that maybe our more working class population is going to see a spike or an increase. I am optimistic, very optimistic that our, our, our young kiddos, honestly, our teenagers will maybe do a little bit better through this because all of a sudden this rampant comparison that was going on via social media is not going to be as rampant because no one's going on these beautiful vacations and no one's out <laughs> at the beach in their bikini. Um, and you know what they're doing is they're spending time at home with mom and dad because everyone's stuck in the house now. And so where over the past several decades, we've seen a retreat from things like the dinner table, yes. right? We were spending half as much time at the dinner table as we used to. And that impacts the development of a child. Well, now we're all trapped at home. So what are you going to do? You're going to have a nice long dinner with your parents, potentially, hopefully, in an ideal environment. So right? I wonder if one of the silver linings in this whole event is will people realize what they were missing and go back to closer relationships with family? I really hope so. And what's interesting, I, you may have noticed this as well, but people are reaching out right now for social connection, even if it's via Zoom, FaceTime, sure. whatever platform. But I've connected with people that I maybe lost contact with in college. And it's, uh, the pandemic caught, was a nidus for us to reconnect. So it's almost in some ways spurred a little bit more connection than was there previously. And I think people are saying, wow, this is much more important than I initially realized. That's beautiful. So we've talked about, you know, loneliness. C can you think of any, 
you know, physical health impacts. So we're not talking about mental health, but physical health impacts of social distancing. So physical health impacts, absolutely. And this is something I tell almost every patient I see right now, because what I've seen is the structure of their day completely uh -huh. melts away. People oh. are sleeping funky hours, they're skipping meals, they're binge eating, they're not exercising, they're not getting outside. Exactly. All of this amounts to things such as a more sedentary lifestyle, weight gain, um, sleep disruptions, insomnia, that type of a thing, which is all associated with things such as sleep apnea, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, strokes down the line, et cetera. Yes. And uh, what I have found, at least in research on unemployment, would bear out with that, or isolated seniors also, particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, and have you seen this happen in any of your patients specifically? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Patients who never had sleep dysregulation issues all of a sudden do because they don't have to be at school or at work at 8 a.m. So it doesn't matter if they fall asleep at 2 a.m. And there's just a melting away across the board of structure in daily life. And let me tell you, I can tell you as a psychiatrist, daily structure and routine is one of the most important things for health. Yeah, I remember, um, who was it, Stanley and Livingston, who met in the middle of Africa, you know, back in the 19th century, you know, um, you know, Livingston, I presume, when they met each other, the one said. And I found out that one of the ways that one of them kept their sanity is every morning he shaved. I mean, it seemed like a little thing, but it was something to anchor a routine and how important that is now. Even if you don't have to get up at a certain time, get up, you know, say your morning offering, say your prayer. You gotta, you gotta have that anchor in your day. Otherwise you're right, you just are aimless. Oh, we looked at suicides. We looked at unemployment and economic catastrophe. Uh, we talked a little about, is there anything else you wanted to say about drug overdoses that we haven't said? Yes, I do. And I want to say mostly that it's something I'm concerned about um, twofold, because we know that when people become lonely or feel isolated, they tend to turn to substances of abuse more often. In fact, loneliness is actually associated with a doubling of the risk for heavy alcohol use. And right now we're seeing two things happen. Well, I guess three things happening simultaneously. One, there's been a significant strain on the economy. Many people are home, concerned about their financial future, and they're feeling uncertain. And so potentially turning to alcohol or drugs as a way to help them in the moment deal with those emotions. What we're also seeing is people are home and they are bored. And what do people do when they're home and they're bored? Eat well, maybe they, yeah, they eat and they drink and they have, instead of a glass of wine, maybe it's a bottle of wine. You know, the evening hours are kind of drawn out. Yes. And in addition to that, the entire country is currently in a heightened state of anxiety. And especially when we look at alcohol and some of the more suppressive type drugs, it's a way to navigate that anxiety. Ah, so it blunts it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't it fascinating? Liquor stores are considered essential and churches are not. Oh, I know. I know. As, as our um, abortion clinics currently consider this oh. as well. But don't get me started on that. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Uh, this one research I found, maybe you can explain it to me, and that is the fact that when you look at the increased mortality due to, lo due to loneliness and social isolation, mm 
the rates of increased mortality for both were about 30% increase per year compared to a, a you know, age and sex matched who's not lonely or isolated. The thing that was fascinating is whether or not you feel lonely didn't matter. So objective social isolation, you know, limited number of contacts versus feeling lonely even in a crowd, same effect. How do you explain that? So I think what happens in both circumstances is that objective isolation leads to the subjective feeling of isolation. But they even controlled for that in these studies. That's what was remarkable. So humans aren't meant to exist alone, to be honest with you. And to articulate this point, I'm going to bring up Ben Sass um, in his book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, is he opens with this beautiful little story. Well, it's a terrible story, but it beautifully illustrates this point of the 1995 Chicago fires. And what they found, or Chicago heat wave, I apologize. Um, in the <laughs> summer like of, yeah, I know, it felt like fire. Um, in the summer of 1995, there was a heat wave. The electricity went out. So many homes were without air conditioning. Many homes didn't have air conditioning to begin with. And the death toll around that time was a, a roughly around 450 people. What they found, though, was three to four weeks following what they assumed was the entire heat wave and the death toll, there was about another 300 individuals that they discovered had died, and they only found them due to the stench of their decomposing body. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And when you looked into this a little bit more, it was the neighborhoods where people were more connected, where they knew who was the elderly gentleman who lived alone down the street and they would go and check in on him, maybe bring him groceries, invite him over, oh. something like that, that, that people fared a little bit better. It was those who were in areas where nobody knew that they were there, nobody cared, nobody knew that they were alone, maybe there was nobody to check in on them, that people suffered and died without anyone knowing. Oh, oh how sad. So when we talk about not just the psychological and emotional benefits of having people in the environment around you who care about you, yes, that's one piece. Two, there's also a very real physical threat if you don't have someone checking in on you during times that are per particularly dangerous, such as now. Uh, that makes sense. And it, it's interesting that the studies that look at the opposite, what's the health benefit of having a good social connection network? Mm -hmm. Benefit was better than the 30% loss if you didn't have it. It was more like a 40 or 50% reduction in mortality compared to others. So I, I thought, you know, the good is better than the bad was bad, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. And that's essentially what the grant study has shown us, right? Out of Harvard, they followed, uh, it's gosh, probably 850, 900 men over an 80-year period now. And they found that those who had not only the highest reported happiness in their life, but who lived the longest were those who had secondary only to some genetic markers um, were the individuals who had the strongest social connection. And I read in somebody who was con commenting about, you know, increased uh, deaths of despair or drug abuse in social isolation. He said the thing that human beings are most addicted to is each other, social relationships. What do you think about that statement? I think it makes perfect sense. Um, and we have so many studies. I could pick a billion right now um, and go through all of them. But think about uh, Harry Harlow's rat studies, or I'm sorry, monkey studies. There was, when they, they found that when um, animals were in a cage alone, they actually became much more ill and died much more quickly than those who were in a cage with playmates of some sort, right? We know that 
part of the chemicals, the oxytocin that's released is necessary, not only for our happiness in the moment, for our, but for our overall physical flourishing as well. And you briefly touched on alcoholism. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the you know, physical, social isolation or unemployment in alcoholism or alcohol intake? Yeah. So something that I think is worth just highlighting for whoever's able to listen to this is anytime we're dealing with substances, it's, there is a short-term gain there. There's something to be gained, right? You are experiencing anxiety, you are experiencing distress or despair, and you take a drink and guess what? You immediately feel better. Mm -hmm. But what we see is you start to engage in this cycle of short-term reward because once whatever the substance is wears off, you're right back to where you were, if not in a worse spot, because now you also have maybe the guilt of what you've done or the headache for leftover from the hangover or something else. So we're seeing a short-term reward, but a long-term cost. And it's a very dangerous cycle when we talk about this. There's going to be big shifts in the environment around us, and people are going to feel inclined to turn to things that give them a short-term reward or short-term relief that have very serious long-term consequences. What recommendations would you have for listeners who are either struggling with that or seeing other people around them struggle with that? Absolutely. So there's a couple ways to go about that. One, AA is actually up and running. They're working via Zoom meetings. I have several patients who have done very, very well during this time. Oh. And it's important that you not only are honest with yourself, but people around you are honest with you and you're honest with them about what your vices may or may not be so that you can get the help and support that you need during this time. Additionally, I think it's really important, and I was wanted to make sure we said this before we ended today, but when we talk about how can you best navigate this time, I love the idea of taking a value-based approach. What is most important to you in your life? Is it your relationships? Is it your career? Is it you know, parenting? Is it your marriage? Anything like this. You identify what that value is and you ask yourself at the beginning of every day, how can I move one step closer to living out that value? And what you might find is that yes, alcohol helps me with my anxiety in the moment, in the here and now, but will that bring me closer to the value? So if we can kind of keep our eyes on the prize, if you will, or on the horizon to say, this yes. is what's most important to me, it can help us navigate some of those really complicated, smaller decisions we make throughout the day. So pick one overarching value you want to be better in by the end of the day than you were at the right. uh, beginning. Uh, right. I like that approach. One thing is simple. <laughs> uh Let's see. What else? You've given us a lot of good advice. What, what other things do you want to say to listeners today, Francie? So I want to say a couple things because my hope is there's going to be several healthcare providers um, who have access to this podcast as well. When we talk oh, about there being um, certain populations who are more at risk, I am very concerned about the healthcare provider population oh. because we are currently in a climate performing thing or performing tasks, giving services that have never before been asked of us. And what we're seeing, at least even anecdotally at this point, is the emotional and psychological toll of this is very high. There's anecdotes of physicians actually contracting COVID, being asymptomatic. And then once they find out that they've had it and they've been passing it on to their patients who may have had um, adverse outcomes such as death, they feel so guilty they'll actually go forward and commit suicide. <sighs> Or when they find out that they're positive, they'll commit suicide instead of risking coming home to their families and infecting their young children. 
And so there's, there's that very real threat. There's also what is the, the long-term kind of cost and toll of contending with a virus that we don't know a lot about and that we kind of are, are powerless to in this yes. moment, right? Physicians are fixers, we're type A people, and yes. when all of a sudden we don't have a solution for something, it doesn't leave you feeling very good at the end of the day, right? And so this adds up day after day after day, and then all of a sudden we're making decisions about how to allocate scarce resources, who gets this and who doesn't get that. And that's something that historically over the last several decades has not been asked of physicians or healthcare providers of any sort um, and will definitely, definitely come at a cost. And so I think we need to be aware when we talk about high-risk populations. I'm worried about those who had pre-existing psychiatric conditions. I'm worried about those who are isolated or lonely, in particularly, especially the elderly. And I'm really worried about healthcare providers, to be honest with you, because we were healthcare providers to begin with were at a heightened risk of suicide. And yes. I think this is really going to spike that. And so this is the time to not only be honest with ourselves about what we're experiencing, but make sure that we're checking in on colleagues. And even if it's something that we don't have a solution for, we're just being honest about our experiences so that we can bear this cross together in many ways. Yes. Yes. Cause physicians are never expected to be human around patients. <laughs> we, we're the ones who take care of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like when patients ask, ask me, well, how are you doing? Sometimes I'll say, I, I don't think about that. <laughs> you know, I just do what I need to do. Um, cause if you do too long, yeah. So what, uh, you know, besides checking in, on people who might be isolated or lonely, what else can be done for that high-risk population? Sure, so here at UC Irvine, actually, we have started a support line out of our psychiatry department that's available to anyone within the hospital to call, and then they'll get a call back with a certain time, and a psychiatrist will call and essentially offer supportive care during Mm -hmm. that point in time. It's free, it is not diagnostic, they won't be prescribed any medications, they can be given a referral to a clinic afterwards if it's felt appropriate. Um, so, but there's a, these lines are popping up across the country, both within hospital systems and just kind of from outside groups wanting to help out. There are many psychiatrists and psychologists who are offering services like this, essentially free, especially to healthcare workers right now. So that's something to look into in your area and definitely not be ashamed to use because this is something that is really, really hard to go through. And I don't think anyone's expected to weather it perfectly or without any scars. And so we got to help each other out where we can. You know, compared to when I was in med school in the late 80s, how do you think the, quote, stigma associated with psychiatric diagnosis has changed? And is this pandemic changing that? So I think it's changed significantly in that for the most part, it's gone down. Um, especially in younger generations. I do a a weekly didactic seminar with our medical students. And Uh even in the couple years that I've done that, hearing how much more open-minded they are to some of these things and encouraging not just themselves, but their peers to share experiences and to reach out to people. One student told me last week, nobody even thinks twice if you say, oh, I have to leave, you know, this social gathering to go see my therapist. It doesn't even cross anyone's mind. Um, and so I think that's a sign of a slightly changing tide. I don't think that has played out in all age demographics. Sure. I know that, um, especially some of my older patients are like, well, I just, if I was just stronger, right? Like pick myself up by my, my bootstraps Bootstra- yeah. <laughs> and especially men more so than women. So, yes. so we have some work to do there, but how will it change in the wake of this pandemic? 
I'm going to try to be pretty optimistic here because already, even though we don't have a great robust plan in place for what the country will do to address the looming psychiatric crisis that will close, close, closely follow this pandemic, um, it's being talked about. We know that it's coming and it's being normalized every time that it's being talked about, right? We expect that once there's financial hardship or once some, you lose someone in your family and you're not able to be there with them during that difficult time, um, or once you've been shut up in your house with your kids <laughs> for two months trying to homeschool when you've never homeschooled, homeschooled before, yes. <laughs> you are expected to kind of experience some anxiety or distress or other symptoms as a result of that. And so the more we kind of talk about that, that can be an expected response. I think it will actually have a beneficial impact on the stigma against mental health or mental illness. Francie, it's been a great blessing having you here with us on Dr. Doctor today. Thank you for doing this so much, especially just a month before delivering baby <laughs> number two. Thank you, listeners, for being with us on Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. If you can, share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.